0: Hey friends, I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and plants and pets that are important to you. This past week I started work on what I hope will be my 12th published novel. I like to write the first drafts of my manuscripts in the month of November. For those who don't know, November is National Novel Writing Month. It's a marathon of sorts wherein writers attempt to log at least 50,000 words of a story. I understand this kind of thing isn't for everybody in the same way running an actual marathon isn't for everybody. But National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo as it's known, it works for me. And yes, it absolutely does make for a heavy month labor-wise, but for me it's a labor of love. Writing is most definitely one of my happy places. Folks, you are listening to the People Are the Enemy podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Andy Mascola. There are no ads on this podcast, and there is no Patreon set up for it. The only thing i's, I've ever asked of listeners is if you love this program, and if you'd like to help support it and myself monetarily, get yourself or the reader in your life some excellent literature, please consider purchasing any or all of my novels. I'm the author of 11 self-published books that are all currently available worldwide in both ebook and paperback formats via Amazon. If you don't use Amazon, you can purchase all of my titles in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, which is spelled M A S C O L A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my books, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song. the enemy listeners this is episode 305 of the people are the enemy podcast thank you so much for checking
1: it out
0: here we go come on baby get into it now do you love the sweet do you know the sweet remember sharpling used to play the sweet good stuff come on baby that's right All right. Come on. I'm going to clap. Let's clap. You want to clap with me? Come on. Let's clap. Come on. Here we go. Yeah. All right. You going to take it down now? it yes i i kid but i i do love i do love it and and yeah i do i did discover the greatness of the Sweet from tom sharpling in the best show he used to play that uh the Sweet a lot he used to play blockbuster if i remember correctly but uh yeah i did some exploring on my own and i was like you know what it'd be fun to start the show with that that song by the Sweet from 1975 uh fox on the run very very cool um speaking of cool, did you have a cool Halloween? Yeah. I I tell you, I've never seen as many kids dressed up as I did this year. And I don't mean as many trick-or-treaters. I'm I'm saying that every kid that came to my door this year was dressed. And it was cool, man. I was like, these kids went all out. Four boys that looked like to be like middle school boys <laughs> Like Two of them were dressed like cops, like one like an old school cop. The other looked like maybe like a SWAT agent or something like that. And uh, the two other guys in this, this foursome that came to my door, one guy was dressed in the black and white stripes <laughs> with pants and the uh, shirt. You know, like he'd be like breaking rocks in the yard, <laughs> you know, with a pickaxe. And the other dude had like one of those orange jumpsuits, like the modern like correctional facility jumpsuits. <laughs> So I was like, "This is pretty good," and I was giving him candy, and I gave each each one a, a couple pieces, and I only gave guy one guy one, and I said, um, "I said here, have another piece, you know, so you can." I gave all your friends too, and he's like, "These guys aren't my friends." That's what he said. It's <laughs> like, "All right, man." I expected a lot of Ken and Barbies, didn't see any. Yeah, no Ken and Barbies. Saw some girls dressed up. I saw a girl dressed up as a pirate. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, a little fairy, you know, a little uh, youngster, a fairy. I saw a kid, a kid came to my door in a full ghillie suit. I was shocked. Have you ever seen a ghillie suit? Yeah, it was a little kid. looked like maybe he was eight or nine years old. And a ghillie suit, for those who don't know, and I only discovered ghillie suits fairly recently when I, when I started listening to this band, The Snapped Ankles because these guys excellent musicians by the way if you ever want to check them out snapped ankles are a great band but they the ba- entire band wears ghillie suits which are these suits that make you look like swamp thing that's the the best way to describe it, it literally looks like you have like vines hanging off every every inch of your body <laughs> and they i think they're like they're made i think for the military for like snipers who hide in swamps, it's a little, it's it's a little scary. Whether the actual the story behind these ghillie suits, but when you see a nine-year-old in one, it's adorable, and I couldn't <laughs> couldn't see his face, but yeah, looked like Sigmund the Sea Monster or Seymour the Sea Monster. That was a bit before my time, but uh, I've seen pictures, and uh, the only thing I can equate it to is is Swamp Thing. That's how I relate because I'm a comic book guy. But uh, wow. Very, very cool. And then a, a gorilla suit guy came in a complete gorilla suit. I say guy. was probably, again, about a five, six-year-old kid. But, uh, yeah, impressive. One kid was a, a whole bottle of ketchup. Yeah, that was his costume. He was like a big bottle of ketchup. I was like, these kids are all right. They're doing it. And when I say, like, you know, they weren't dogging it. You know what I mean? Because in previous years... We'd have kids come to the door and they'd just be like in a mask, and that's fine. You're gonna get candy if you come to my door in a mask. I'm not gonna like, you know, say you know, uh, no trick or treat for you or anything like that. I'm not that kind of guy. But uh, but yeah, this year they went all out. I don't. I didn't see. I saw lots of really really cool costumes, and uh, I was impressed by the uh, the kids. They seemed to uh, do their darndest to uh, to put on a, a good show. I'll tell you what happened. The one thing happened, and I wanted to talk about this because it was so odd, uh, and I still like I had a real hard time, <laughs> just like, understanding why this happened, and uh, maybe somebody can explain it to me. I I, I suppose it was a prank, um, but it was like such a weird, specific prank, and I and I couldn't understand how like the person who pulled this prank would be able to enjoy the results of the prank, you know what I mean? And uh, and what I'm, when I say that, I mean, like, I'm thinking about, like, did you ever see the movie Billy Madison with Adam Sandler? Do you remember when, like, they put a, a bag of crap on an old man's uh, front doorstep and set it on fire, and he comes out in his boots and stomps it, and he gets poops all over his boots? Do you remember that? <laughs> and, of course, like, Adam Sandler and his buddies are giggling, or, you know, just behind a bush or something like that. That that's that's what I mean. Okay, the prank was not like that at all. It wasn't. It wasn't even like mean, really. It was. It was more weird. Um, but it happened to me at my house, and what it was was like we had um, some people come to the door and and uh, trick or treaters and got candy, and then they moved on, and then it was quiet for a while, and my wife said, "I think Andy, I think somebody's at the door," and I said, "Okay, let me go check," and I opened the door and i see a mother there with her daughter who was dressed as like a like a princess or a fairy princess or something and she was crawling up the steps and uh reaching toward a pumpkin that that was a like basket style plastic pumpkin with a sign on it that was had been placed on the top of my steps and i said hey trick or treat and i i gave her some candy. And then they turned around to start leaving. And I said, you, you forgot your your plastic pumpkin basket here. And the woman said, oh no, that we thought that was yours. There's a sign on it. So I look inside the plastic pumpkin, first of all, and it's filled with breadsticks, like nothing gross, just literally like breadsticks and some slices of bread. <laughs> I was like, okay. And Lola, the dog, Of course, I can't get through a podcast without mentioning my dog comes out. And of course, she's sniffing around. She's uh, curious about this bread. And I look at the front of the pumpkin and somebody has taped a sign to it, whoever put it there, I assume, that says, uh, please only take one. (laughs) And I understood the joke and I'm like, oh, that's pretty funny. And I suppose that had I not seen it, I probably would have heard people come to the steps to get what they thought was candy and then instead find this plastic pumpkin full of bread but here's the weird thing like there was no way to not know we were giving out candy and would have found this thing because we had a giant giant uh cloth pumpkin on the front door we had the 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 outside door wide open we had the light on we had two little pumpkins on the um on the on the deck and uh and I I was like what a weird prank and I looked around and I didn't see anybody And I just said, okay, well, this is going in the trash because, you know, beyond the bread, I have no idea what else may be in this. If anything, nefarious, obviously, I don't want to touch it. So I I, I just walked it out to my trash can in my driveway and I threw it away. And then I went back inside and 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 then the kids, you know, continued to come and nothing else happened. And I thought, like, maybe it was left by a friend as a joke and they're going to text me and tell me they left it. But nothing. Very strange. And I like like I said, you know, at the beginning of that story, I, I I didn't understand. Like were there young people going around with a car full of these plastic pumpkin heads full of bread and signs? <laughs> Just like or were they were they watching from a distance when I first discovered it? Because I don't know how else you enjoy that prank. You know what I mean? It's such a weird prank. Unless they filmed it, you know. Which is very possible, you know, for a TikTok video. If, if anybody saw a TikTok video where kids were doing this, let me know. Because I, I if I see my house on it, then I'll know this is what it was all about. But it was just a very strange, strange Halloween prank. Um, what else did I want to talk about with you here? Okay. All right. Yeah, we're going to get into it with Morrissey. Yeah, he's at it again. Okay. Morrissey... In, if, for folks who don't know, Morrissey was the lead singer of a band called The Smiths in the 80s. My favorite British band of all time. Love, I love The Smiths. And what Morrissey did with The Smiths was amazing. Okay, Has Morrissey become controversial as he's gotten older? Yes, he certainly has. Has he become um, cryptically racist or blatantly racist? Yeah, I think he has. Yeah. If you're making fun of somebody's uh, ethnicity and their accent, I think you're a racist. Okay. Um, needless to say, I'm not. I'm no longer a fan because I don't, I don't. I don't like that stuff. You know. And this was a guy who was singing about you know alienation and and um, wanting to belong uh, with the Smiths. And it seems to he seems to have done a complete one eighty in terms of his uh, in terms of his thoughts on that and his rhetoric. And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. He was promoting a tour that he's on called 40 Years of Morrissey and when they say 40 Years of Morrissey I, I assume they mean uh, since the Smiths because their first album came out in 1983 and here we are in 2023 and Morrissey continued to have a, a successful solo career after the Smiths and uh, he was being interviewed on a show called Good Day New York and uh, it's it's there's some interesting things that uh, that he said in this interview, and uh, I don't know who else would be uh, talking about this, but uh, I felt like it would be fun to uh, to play these this this a couple clips of Morrissey being interviewed on uh, Good Day New York and uh, and poke a little fun at him. <laughs> okay, all right, check this out. Here he is. Here's Morrissey on Good Day New York.
2: Collaborations. Let's talk about collaborations. Yeah. You did a little something on the new album. Can we talk about Miley Cyrus? Yeah. Will we hear that?
1: Yeah. Oh, no, she 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 doesn't want to be on it now.
0: Okay. <laughs> I hope you can hear it. The volume seems very low, but, um... The interviewer asked Morrissey about collaborations on this new album. When she says new album, this album was recorded in 2021. And it's now being uh, essentially held by Capitol Records, I believe, until Morrissey gives them money for it, because uh, they don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. <laughs> um, and for good reasons. Um... Because uh, his rhetoric is kind of uh, hateful and terrible. Anyway, uh, supposedly uh, Miley Cyrus performed a song with Morrissey uh, two years ago for this album, and now she does not, or her management does not want her on the album, or at least that's what uh, more Miley Cyrus's camp is telling Morrissey. Here's a little more.
1: She doesn't want to. I mean, she she I, I didn't ask her to. She came in and she sang, and she sang magnificently, but her. The manager doesn't want her on it now, which is a shame because she sang so beautifully on Mm. the track. Maybe she'll think about it. I don't think so.
2: (laughs) Can we convince her?
1: No, I don't think you can because it's been two years and uh, I think she would have made up her mind by now. All right, so
0: forget. Okay. (laughs) The interviewer knows it's time to move on because he's playing with his pant cuff and not looking at her any longer. And I think she realizes it's a, a sore subject, or at least uncomfortable. But yeah, I can understand Miley Cyrus associating herself with Morrissey at this time is not a good look for Miley Cyrus. Um, but uh, yeah, this is it, it gets a little more interesting at this point of the interview. I'm going to play a little bit more of it for you. Check this out. Here's, uh, here's where she went with the uh, questioning next. What
1: about Miley. Who else do we want to collaborate with? Uh, nobody. Nobody. No, all the people I've known, I've met, I've loved, I've wanted to meet, I've wanted to love, love, love. I've met them all, and um, I've collaborated with a few people, and that's great. I'm not saying it's the end of the road by any means, but right. in regards to that question, I'm quite satisfied. I'm very satisfied.
2: I mean, this is not the last time we're going to see you in New York, is this, Morris? I don't
1: think so, unless I'm assassinated.
0: Okay, What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you caught that, but the interviewer asks, uh, "This isn't the last time we're going to see you in New York, is it, Morrissey?" And he says, "I don't think so, unless I'm assassinated." Hello, what? <laughs> it's a it's a dark place to go, and also, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think you're you're that important, pal. Really, at this point, um, not to people who would uh, do something like that anyway. All right, here we go.
2: You're not... You're going to be fine. Do you think there's somebody after you? Should I know? Uh, There's a lot of people in the studio here right now. (laughs) Do I need to be concerned?
1: You never can tell.
2: You never can tell. tell. No, I think people adore you and they love your music.
1: Uh, Are there any... Well, I'm sure he
0: still has fans, but... uh, uh, Again, I love the Smiths. I love a lot of early Morrissey, but uh, at this point I am tapping out... I do, uh, but I do believe people can change. I've always said that. I was talking with my daughter about that yesterday. We were talking about uh, another controversial figure, Mr. Ariel Pink. And if you don't know, Ariel Pink, was, of all places, showed up at J- at J6, at January 6th at the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she was talking about, my daughter was saying, you know, I really, I really loved some of the songs on this one album. And I said, look, I said, um, you own the album doesn't mean you can't play it you know it's not like you you've already he's got his money from the album that you purchased you know but you know seven five six whatever however many years ago it was you know i said uh I said if you feel guilty at all, just uh don't stream it, because the streams will, will give these people money. And you obviously, if, if, if you feel that sincere, that, that way about it. I, I know there are people who can listen to controversial artists and not feel any kind of guilt. But uh, I do. I do. And I feel, uh, I feel like um, if, if I, I'm opening my wallet, you know, even if it's just, again, a means of, of giving streams or clicks to somebody um who is a person i has done something hateful or something or i don't care for or said something uh, horrible in the press uh you know t- to an extreme degree where they you know obviously um there are certain situations where people apologize and and i believe that everybody has the uh the capacity to uh to turn themselves uh, around and turn over a new leaf and say, yeah, that was the old me. I'm, I've, I'm a changed person, and I was uh, in a bad place at that time. You know, i You know, I believe people can change, and I and I hope people change. I would love Morrissey to change back. And when I say change back, I mean go back to that that guy I loved all those years ago. And uh, time will tell. Anyway, uh, I am going to hand things off to our friend Rachel from Des Moines. And she is going to give you the chart chat. So without any further ado, take it away, Rachel.
2: Thanks, Andy. Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week, especially Tavy for sharing the ep and reinforcing the smoke on the water kids in the hall connection. Tavy also pointed out that that needlepoint great Rosie Greer came up in the Double Threat podcast too. Real Monday Show Synergy. Thanks to Jill, Sherry, Bob, Jeffrey and Melinda for your comments as well. Today is the conclusion of the Freedom Rock series, and since we have reached the songs on the compilation that all topped the Billboard Hot 100, in addition to the usual sources like Wikipedia and billboard.lp.jp, I consulted the Billboard Book of Number One Hits, 5th Edition by Fred Bronson. Hitting number one for one week on September 16th of 1972 is Black and White by Three Dog Night. The song was written by Earl Robinson and David Arkin, father of Alan in 1955 to celebrate the school desegregation ruling in Brown v. Board of Ed in 54. The original had five verses and lyrics that more directly referenced the Supreme Court ruling. The song was performed by artists like Pete Seeger, the co-writer Robinson, and Sammy Davis Jr. The British reggae band Greyhound were the first to release Black and White as a commercial single, which was a number six hit in the UK. The American rock band Three Dog Night, were on a European tour when they heard Greyhound's version on Dutch radio, and they knew it would be a hit immediately. They included it on their eighth album, Seven Separate Fools. This was the third number one hit for Three Dog Night after Mama Told Me Not to Come and Joy to the World. Three Dog Night had three lead vocalists, Corey Wells, Chuck Negron, and Danny Hutton. Uh, Hutton is still in the group, and he sang lead on Black and White, while Negron did the lead vocal on Joy to the World and Wells on Mama Told Me Not to Come. I think that's cool that each one got to have a number one hit. I think this is a great fit for the compilation because of the social issue it covers. Hitting a peak of number one for one week on March 24th of 1973 is Love Train by the OJs. This was the third single off of their sixth album and their first on the Philadelphia International label. The group had been active since 58, putting out records since 65, and having some success on the R&B and pop charts. They bounced around between different labels, and then they connected with the powerhouse songwriters and producers Gamble and Huff and got signed to their new label, and finally found success starting with the single Backstabbers, that was the number 3 pop and number 1 R&B, followed by 992 Arguments, and then the smash Love Train. The song was written and produced by Gamble and Huff. The label's house band MFSB, known for their hit TSOP, backed up the OJs on the track. I learned that the OJ's name came from a DJ who had been their manager in the early 60s, Cleveland's Eddie OJ, and the group hailed from Canton, Ohio. Love Train is an excellent fit for the compilation to hit on the soul side of things, as well as for its explicit call for peace and brotherhood worldwide. Love Train was the OJ's biggest pop hit, and they had six top ten hits over the years. Hitting a peak of number one for three weeks, starting from December 4th of 1965, making it the oldest hit on the compilation is Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything There is a Season by The Birds. This is the other openly religious song I alluded to in the discussion of Put Your Hand in the Hand. The lyrics are taken from the Book of Ecclesiastes in the King James Version of the Old Testament. Pete Seeger adapted the Bible passage and added the turn, turn, turn refrain, as well as I swear it's not too late after a time for peace. Seeker recorded a version in '62, as did a folk group, the Limelighters, but it was the Birds version, with arrangement by Roger McGuinn, then going by Jim, that saw the greatest success. He had originally arranged the tune in a chamber folk style for a Judy Collins album, then in a more folk rock style for his own group. In the number one hits book, it says the birds first played around with the song on their tour bus, and that group member David Crosby added vocal harmonies to come up with their own version. This is one of two number ones for The Birds, the other being Mr. Tambourine Man. Turn, Turn, Turn is a good fit for the compilation. It's very representative of the 60s and the peace movement. It's also closely associated with The Wonder Years, which has started in, in 88, probably around the time that this compilation ad was airing. Hitting a peak of number one for three weeks starting on August 29th of 70 is War by Edwin Starr. Edwin Starr was a singer-songwriter who worked in the soul, R&B, funk, disco, and psychedelic genres. He was from Nashville but raised in Cleveland. He served in the U.S. military in a European post. Starr became a Motown recording artist in 1966 when his old label Rick Tick was bought out. In 1970, label makes The Temptations included the Norman Whitfield-Barrett-Strong composition War on their 12th album Psychedelic Shack. There were calls from fans to release War as a single by The Temptations, but the label decided against it and it either gave the st- song to Star or he requested it, depending on which you read, and they released that in a version that Whitfield reworked to better fit Edwin Starr's style. In addition to its number one status in the U.S., it also hit number one in Canada and top ten around the world, Ireland, Norway, U.K., and West Germany. Starr remained popular in the U.K. for many years, with, with fans of the Northern Soul sound. He moved there in 1983. He had four top 40 U.S. pop hits but is best known for War. War was covered by many artists, notably Bruce Springsteen, and released on the live 75-85 box set. The Wikipedia page for War shockingly doesn't mention its appearance in the Seinfeld app with the Tolstoy gag. The song is also featured in the Simpsons and the Rush Hour movies. This is an A-plus fit for the compilation and is seen as one of the most popular protest songs. Hitting a peak of number one for three weeks, starting on March 25th, 1972, is Horse With No Name by America. This one goes out to the news radio fans. America is a rock trio formed by Jerry Buckley, Dewey Bunnell, and Dan Peake, who met as children of U.S. Air Force service members stationed in London. They attended the London Central High School for American students in their same situation. Horse With No Name was the first single off of their self-titled debut album, and it was the proverbial last-minute addition to the record that becomes the hit. The song was also a number one hit in Canada and Finland and went top 10 in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, and the UK. It actually hit charts in many of those lands before the U.S. because they had become well-known in the UK and Europe. The group's name was taken from an Americana-brand jukebox in the mess hall and a desire not to be seen as Brits trying to sound American. Though the song faced more criticism for trying to sound Canadian. A funnel interview cites backlash that they received for copying CSN and Y, and specifically Neil Young. The lyrics have also been criticized by music writers, other artists, listeners, and stand-up comedians. Randy Newman supposedly called it a song about a kid who thinks he's taken acid. The lyrics were inspired by Bennell's time in California when he was younger, the desert in California. I don't think this is a really a good fit for the compilation. It's a little bit odd compared to some of the other choices. But it may be there as a stand-in for the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young songs they couldn't get. Hitting a peak of number one for six weeks in July, starting in July 12th of 1969 is In the Year 2525 by Zager and Evans. I want to say straight up, I think this song is very dark-sided, but I will still report on it for you. In the Year 2525 is one of five Freedom Rock selections mentioned in the Book of Bad Songs. It earned distinction for generating, quote, the most intense hatred per voter. Horse with no name also got a lot of votes for lyrics, and Signs was covered last week. Layla and Freebird made the book, but mainly for length. Back to the evil song at hand. Two Nebraskans, Denny Zager from Wymore and Rick Evans of Lincoln, met at Nebraska Wesleyan University, also in Lincoln, in 1962. They had a group called the Eccentrics until 65, then reunited as Zager and Evans in 1968. They rounded out the group with Mark Dalton on bass and drummer Dave Trump, also both Nebraskans in the year 2525 was written in 64 but not recorded till 68 the full title in the year 2525 exordium and terminus is off the album of the same name they released it on the tr- their own truth label then it started gaining airplay in lincoln and omaha before they got signed to rca records and went national with it it hit number one in the u.s and the uk giving them the distinction of being the only act to hit number one on both sides of the pond with no further chart appearances in those two countries Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's a bad fit for Freedom Rock. It clearly struck a chord with audiences dealing with the fears of the time. And finally, hitting a peak of number one for four weeks starting in March 16th of 1968 is Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. Otis Redding was a soul R&B singer-songwriter from Dawson, Georgia, who was raised in Macon. He started singing at an early age, at church, school, on the radio, and in local talent shows. He cited Little Richard and Sam Cooke as his influences. He toured the South as a member of the Pat Tea Cake and the Mighty Panthers, with guitarist Johnny Jenkins. Once Otis Redding drove Jenkins to a session at the Stax Studios in Memphis and got on the mic himself impressing studio chief Jim Stewart with his performance on a ballad, earning himself a contract. He started releasing singles in 1960 and his first album in 62. He found chart success on the pop and R&B sides. He performed at the famous Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 and shortly after returned to the San Francisco Bay Area on tour with the Bar Kays. At that time, he stayed at concert promoter Bill Graham's houseboat in Sausalito, Sausalito and his experiences there prompted him to start writing Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. He finished the song as a co-write with fellow Stax legend guitarist Steve Cropper in late 67 and recorded it on November 7th. On December 10th, Otis Redding sadly died in an airplane crash in Wisconsin proper finished the recording and including the seagull and wave sounds by Rudding's request the song was released on january 8th of 68 and shot to number one it was also a uk number one this was the first posthumous u.s number one and he had a large backlog of songs and so there was many further album and single releases for him i think this is a great fit for the compilation for the san francisco reference and for the peaceful imagery that it contains well that's all from me this week thanks so much for listening back to you andy
0: Thank you, Rachel. Amazing job. What a great way to experience that Freedom Rock collection. Very, very cool. And uh, while we're on the subject, I want to say uh, happy birthday to Rachel from Des Moines. I hope you had a great birthday weekend. I hope uh, all the listeners remembered to turn their clocks back and had uh, enjoyed that extra hour. I just finished reviewing a uh Feel-Ease album. They're a set of live Velvet Underground songs. A really, really cool double album of music from a great, great band. And uh, I liked it so much and enjoyed writing about it. I was listening to their album In Between right now, which you might be able to hear in the background here. Let me turn it up a little bit. Fantastic, from Halladon, New Jersey. What an excellent, excellent band. Really beautiful. Uh, Folks, this has been episode 305 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. We love you. Peace.